This program and its online content contains audio and information about traumatic events that may be triggering to those who have experienced something similar. It may also be unsuitable for younger listeners. Welcome to Migration Trail, the project that uses maps, data and audio to join the dots of a story spread across Europe and beyond. We've got something of a circular system going on. Restrictions on immigration and an increase in border control lead to an increase in migration via unofficial routes as people are pushed into having to circumvent these controls, which then leads to more restrictions on immigration and an increase in border control. As one goes up, so does the other. The EU has come to be known as Fortress Europe, and if you look at the numbers behind it, you see some interesting expenditures. Between 2007 and 2014, 225 million euros was spent on drones, jeeps, speedboats and night vision goggles, amongst other gear, to help border guards better secure Europe's frontier. And the budget for Frontex, the organisation that secures Europe's external borders, grew 40-fold, from a mere 6.1 million euros back in 2005 to 238 million in 2016. Frontex also plans to double its current staff in the next five years. On the human side of this system, any time you have a lot of people in one place who can't legally travel or work, hidden economies are going to develop. People still have basic needs, but their way of meeting them is compromised, so they trade what they have for what they want, or do something for someone in exchange for something they can't do without. Here is my bed. Was the plaster on the wall. Abraham is someone whose story we've been following throughout this series. He made the dangerous crossing of the Sahara to work in Libya. And when that didn't work out, paid a smuggler to get him on a boat to Italy. He was rescued in the Mediterranean in June of 2016, requested asylum in Italy and has been waiting nearly a year to hear if his application has been approved. The state pays for his housing and food in a camp near Foggia in southern Italy, and he's entitled to support money on top of that, 75 euros a month, or 2 euros 50 a day. Which, you know, is not a lot, but even then, the Italian government doesn't always hand it out as cash. They give this credit card or cigarettes. Ibrahima often received a card with money on it, 5 euros for two days, or a phone card or cigarettes that he could resell. Sometimes he got a good price for them, and sometimes he didn't. Sometimes he got his 75 euros all at once, in cash, but it was never predictable. It's like that. No. You manage like that till you have what you want. Smuggling is also an informal economy, a huge one, but not one that's on the books. And it's not the only one. Across Europe, human traffickers are also profiting from people on the move. Smuggler and trafficant is different. Alberto Mossino is president of PM Onlus, an Italian NGO that provides assistance for people who are victims of human trafficking. The smuggler is somebody that you pay, you have a contract, an agreement, when you arrive, 
the, the connection is finished, the agreement is finished. Trafficant is somebody that they take you with lie, with force, with uh, violence, and they carry you by force in another country to exploit you. And when you arrive in the country, the, the country destination country, you are not free because you have to, you have to pay the debt to the trafficant. It is simple, but it's the main difference. The smuggling and trafficking channels are much, much better working than the, the border fence or the border guards. Yana Sabova is a lawyer who manages the Bulgarian Helsinki Committee, an NGO dedicated to human rights issues for refugees and migrants. Whereas it's a huge business. They say that the money that is uh, accumulated by this uh, criminal activity, human smuggling and trafficking, actually is is uh, twice bigger than a combination of arm uh, trafficking, uh, drugs trafficking and uh, sex trafficking. The three together. And it's twice bigger than this three, the human, human trafficking as well. All these restrictive measures are really very ill-conceived and, and misjudged because they don't produce anything positive. The only thing that they produce is that they're pouring more money into this uh, criminal business. Because the more they block the borders and close the regular legal avenues for these people to enter, they actually channel more and more people to human trafficking and smuggling. And this is the real effect of all these restrictive measures. So it's, I know that this political decision, which plays very dangerously, with the fears of unknown and, you know, the Islamists and the radicalization and everything else in Europe. But it produces just uh, the opposite. It produces more criminality, more crime-related activities to human trafficking and smuggling, and more corruption. Human trafficking in Italy is not only based in the big town. It's a national phenomenon. If you go around in Italy, in every small, small town, you can see girls that work in the streets you know, in the exploitation of the prostitution. Up until a few years ago, traffickers brought a handful of women at a time to Europe with fake visas or documents. But traffickers have recently discovered that if they exploit the migrant routes from Libya to Italy, they can get a lot more women to Europe. And a lot of them are from Nigeria. The IOM, the International Organization for Migration, estimated that 11,000 Nigerian women landed in Italy this way in 2016. 90% of these 11,000 are identified like victims of trafficking. The first that, uh, women come in the 82, 83, in, uh, from Nigeria to Italy, and then to Spain and other countries. You know? The 30 years of this experience made the Nigerian human traffickers a really international mafia. Earlier in this series, we met Fatima, a former prison guard from Ghana who came to Europe with false documents in 2007. A Nigerian friend of hers organized everything but when she arrived in Europe, she discovered she was expected to work the streets to pay him back. She escaped on her first night and now helps Alberto get victims of human trafficking off the street. They normally tell them that uh, you come and I have a, a shop because many of them know how to weave hair. 
I have a saloon that you can help me at the saloon. I have a, a, a restaurant that you can help me to, to work there. I have a, a place that you can be a babysitter. This is some of the things that they tell them. But normally, the Poma is a, a good future in a good country. That means uh, work and money. No, simple work that the girl can believe that they can do this in Europe. When, when the victim arrives in Italy, she's processed with all the other people, declares an intention to claim asylum, and the government places her in a reception centre. After a few weeks, the trafficker's Italian connection contacts her by phone. Then they join together and the trafficker take the girl out from the centre and they start to, start to exploit the, the girl in, uh, in the streets. Normally some girls know that the work is prostitution, but many of the girls don't know the kind of prostitution because many of these girls are coming from poor, poor country. Maybe they did prostitution even in Nigeria for survive, not like work, but sporadic prostitution and voluntary. They think that, okay, it's possible to tease in Europe, but they think a big, big hotel, a big, big party, big, big uh, businessmen, a lot of money. Prostitution, you can see in, uh, in television, no? in some uh, film, uh, American film, it is, uh, Las Vegas, uh, you understand? No? Then when I reach here, I start to understand that, okay, you have to work in the streets. You cannot choose the customer. All the money that you take, somebody, they, they, they take back the money, the debt. It's very, very big. 30,000 euro is normally the debt that the girl has to pay. Trafficant tell, tell the girl, don't worry, when you reach Europe, it's a country of uh, promised land. Three, four months, you can pay this debt after you are free. Then this girl discovered that it's not free. You are slave for three, four years in bad, bad condition. The way it usually works is that the traffickers rent a house for the victims to live in but they're expected to work on the streets. Any money they make goes straight to the traffickers. It pays off the initial debt, but also the living costs in Europe, which quickly add up. The trafficker is charging you 50,000 euros, and you are living in her house. In her house, you are paying the house rent. The house rent is 200 euros a month. You are paying food money 50 euros a week. When the light bill comes, the gas bill comes, they are paying the, uh, the house rent for her. She's not paying anything. If she's going out, maybe they are having a party, she wants to go. She said, I'm going out. You, have to, you people have to contribute to buy outing dress. And once the debt has been paid off, the victim doesn't have the documents to stay in that country because she went underground before she completed the asylum process. When Fatima sees someone on the streets that she suspects is a victim of human trafficking, she'll approach them with information on how to get out of it. Every day, when we go there, we still advise them. We don't leave it to rest. We still continue advising them, advising them, advising them, so that they will know that it's real. It, it's, it's not easy. It's not easy to be convinced. As you are convincing her, the, the trafficker is calling her to convince her. Hey, don't follow these people. They will give you to the police. 
That's what they tell them. Because you don't have paper, if they give me to the police, maybe they will deport me. That means I won't listen to them. For me, it's better we hunt them. We hunt the traffickers. But leaving isn't simple. It's not easy. If you tell the trafficker, she can harm you and she can make you, she can lock you in a house, in a room that you can't even come out. So many of them comes with only what they are wearing and they don't go back. Like me, I came with only what I'm wearing and I couldn't go back. There are some that uh, they come to meet us and discuss with us. We are on the road, we are doing the, the street team. Uh, uh, they will talk to us, this is the problem I'm having. Then we'll advise you, don't tell the, your madam. Don't tell her anything, leave it with her normally. And just get this information, her name and her surname, and uh, where you are living, and her phone number. We need those things because of the police. For them to be, to be, to be sure that what you are saying is truth. When we get it, then we we'll write it and apply in the immigration office. So they is their investigations that they have to do. So the girl has to wait. Some wait more than one year. And not only is leaving not easy, it's also dangerous. The traffickers may come and look for the victim who's escaped and may even go after her family back home, killing family members or setting their house on fire. But if the victim gives her testimony and the police manage to catch the trafficker, that victim will likely get the papers that allow her to stay and work in Italy. She will get the protection, she will get the permit of stay. But if they don't arrest, because many of them... Traffickers, when they see that the girls has escaped, they also escape. They leave where they are living, the address they are living. They will change a city, they will change a, a street. So it becomes difficult. Alberto and Fatima's organisation not only gives victims a place to sleep, they also make sure they learn Italian and provide them with some work if they can, or additional schooling. We do all these courses, like how to, to do the assistant nursing to help in the uh, community homes of the old age. All these things, we put them in the program so that they are, they are learning something. So at the end of the day, before they finish and get their documents, they know that this is what I've learned. I can still work somewhere. Many have gone there, out there, they have their jobs, they are living on their own, many. There are more than uh, 100 plus, even those recently, those who have gotten documents, those who are married, those who are working, many, 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 many meet me and say, ah, oh, we, if we didn't listen to your advice, we couldn't have been here. Yes. Yes. I don't hide my story. I tell them, I also came as you people came. But look at me. I've changed. 
I'm able to live a new life. I'm able to bring my children. I'm living better. I'm working. Yes. Human trafficking doesn't just mean prostitution. It also means forcing people to become involved in drug trafficking or doing jobs for little or no pay until the trafficking fee has been paid off. It's not only people who've been trafficked who are vulnerable to exploitation, though. Even once you have your papers and are allowed to stay and work legally, your options are limited. But you still need to earn money to pay rent and to eat, and jobs can be hard to come by. One form of employment that might be available? Low-paid work in industries like agriculture, where there's a perpetual shortage of locals who want to do the work, like harvesting fruits and vegetables. In Italy, the tomato harvest is one of the most important harvests of the year, but picking them doesn't pay well. For tomatoes, they pay three euro and a half for 300 kilos of tomato. And it's very hard. A container for 300 kilos of tomatoes is the size of one of those big industrial wheelie bins that you might see outside of a supermarket or apartment building. One metre high by one and a half metres long and one and a half metres wide. Tomatoes are not easy to pick and each worker picks eight to 12 bins over a 12 hour day. But as produce goes, tomatoes are pretty cheap to buy. There's a reason for that. Their price in the supermarket doesn't reflect those conditions. Because if you have the retailers, supermarket or whatever, that sell products at a very low price, it's because there is someone that can be and have to be exploited for doing this, this job. It's a very tough job done during summer at 40 degrees under the sun uh, without any toilet without anything you cannot stop you cannot drink you cannot eat you just have to work fabio ciconte is the director of terra an organization involved in migrant labor rights migrant workers stay at shanty towns near the farms camps that look like the one at calais with ramshackled shelters and no running water Abrema worked in the fields for a while, but eventually stopped because there was a shortage of work. I don't think many people are making money in this a lot. In order to find work, there's a middleman involved. Might be, might be the guy who is connecting with the Italian man. Maybe he's making money in this. But the layman's, uh, it's not easy. That is this person called in Italian Caporale. That it's a person that gives you a job, give the migrants a job. I never see an Italian guy coming to the camp. They arrange it with uh, black guys. Those guys come and find boys, then those guys will be paying the boys. Yeah. And the relationship with the caporales means that the migrants make even less money. For giving the migrants a job, he takes some money from the, the, from the migrants. So it's up to him to decide who is going to work in uh, which condition, for how long, 
if can work or cannot working. That means all that refugees are exploited by them for each bean they take 50 cents and if you think that every day they bring 100 people they take a lot of money so this is a, a very um, a bad condition for thousands of people in Italy if you want to work you have to pay for your bed, you have to pay for water, you have to pay for the transport from the camp to the uh, tomato. By the end of the day, half of your salary is for Caporali. The nature of the industry itself is also changing. The tomato harvest is decreasing because the machines are increasing. So we have a, a huge amount of people going in the south of Italy looking for a job. They don't find a job and they live in this very bad condition. That it's very stressful, very bad. So also inside the camp there is a lot of tension. Outside the camp there is a lot of tension with local people. It's because they don't have a job, they need to eat something, they need money. So it's very, very, it's very, very hard. Fabio's NGO has also campaigned to get supermarkets to change how they buy and price their produce, to create fair prices and a transparency label as well, so people know they're buying something that didn't involve exploitation. In Italy we have 7,000 hectares of tomato, 3 billion of euros of economy of tomato. We have to change the supply chain because behind it you have all the multinational company like Bayer, Monsanto etc that uh, sell your seeds for tomato so there is a an entire supply chain it's a huge supply chain there's a huge amount of money around this supply this tomato harvest and the refugees are the last small part of this process. It means that nobody cares about them. Last year, a number of unions and organisations, including Fabio's, lobbied the Italian government to pass a law that would prevent farms from hiring workers without a contract and banning the caporale system. It passed, but that doesn't mean the exploitation of migrant labour is over. Last year, we have been to the Cara de Mineo. It's a huge center for asylum seekers in Sicily, where used to live more than 2,000 people, but it's an official camp. Most of them cannot work because they, they are asylum seekers without a temporary permission for working. And we have met several asylum seekers working on the harvest of uh, oranges and it was crazy because every day they open this camp and they used to go by bicycle along the orange trees looking for a job so in a way the institution allowed it it was a shame 
because it cannot work. So you are giving the chance to be exploited. One of the arguments used against immigrants is that they'll take jobs, particularly in a country that's going through a period of austerity, like Greece and Italy, coincidentally the two EU countries that see the largest number of migrants landing on their shores. But the evidence for those arguments seems to be mixed. When immigrants fill jobs, the effect on local communities is small. Migrants tend to take whatever work they can get because they just want to work and because there might be a language and cultural barrier which prevents them from getting anything else, so they usually wind up with a job that no one else wants. Before the Schengen Zone was created in the 1990s, it was quite easy for migrants to legally do seasonal or temporary work and then go back home safely. But we seem to have forgotten that. The image of migrant as job stealer tends to stick and the atmosphere is not always welcoming. Sometimes it's more one of... We don't want them here, they are not real refugees, they have to come back to their home. Uh, we don't have uh, work for Italians, so why we have to help them? Uh, so there is a, a lot of racism in the xenophobia. It's all because Italy, like other countries in Europe, have a lot of crises, you know? Unemployment, uh, uh, they say we don't want them because we are in crisis now, we can't help them, they have to come back to their home. This sentiment is also used to justify increased spending on border security or deportations. For those who do make it to the EU, the system across Europe for receiving people isn't keeping up with the numbers arriving. Although this failure could, in many cases, be attributed to a lack of will, not just a lack of capacity. So Europe is looking for solutions outside of Europe, in people's countries of origin, like, say, Senegal. Or Europe is striking deals with countries just beyond its borders, like Turkey, countries which host many refugees and serve as a place of transit for those hoping to reach Europe. One pending deal in particular worries Nicholas Yutzi, who works with the migrant rights NGO Borderline Sicilia. There is a lot of pressure from Europe that Italy make an agreement with, with Libya. The problem is that Libya has two or three governments, so it's very difficult to make an agreement with them. So we are making an agreement with a non-government, a government that doesn't control, in fact, the, the, the Libya territory, and overall with a country that where we know that there are a lot of violence and torture against migrants. Yeah, well, uh, for many years, that's uh, what Europe has been trying to do, European member states, especially in pushing through deals with non-European countries to police migration and police migrants and refugees before they arrive at European shores, where they have to be taken care of and so on, and, and have their asylum claims processed and so on. Ruben Anderson is an anthropologist researching irregular migration and border controls in southern Europe. We created buffer zones in the European neighbourhood, reaching far into the borderlands beyond uh, the European frontiers, where now security forces from neighbouring countries are policing migration on our behalf. This has been the case between Spain and West Africa, uh, sealing uh, shady friendship pacts, as Italy did with uh, Gaddafi 
uh, in Libya uh, or now uh, reaching these very expensive deals and offering all sorts of concessions to Turkey in order to police uh, refugee uh, flows on its side of the border. And the problem here is you created also an incentive for these countries to keep on using migration as a bargaining chip in relation with Europe. Uh, Libya did that for many years, Morocco has done it, uh, other countries are doing it in terms of putting pressure on Europe, uh, threatening that there will be more migration unless more cooperation is forthcoming, and so creating a very destructive dynamic that I think we're now seeing also happening in Turkey to some extent. Uh, sadly, it seems like on European level there's no political will for finding a shared common approach, not just within Europe, but in relation to much larger refugee hosts outside of Europe. So instead, everyone's trying to push the problem out of their backyard. There's a beggar thy neighbor policy of building fences, pushing people to new, new routes, uh, putting in place punitive policies on one slice of the border, creating a problem elsewhere instead. So this is exactly the kind of problem we're dealing with, a self-reinforcing uh, industry of controls that needs to be uh, counteracted by some moves towards common approach and some shared solidarity on this issue, which has solely been lacking. Next, on the final episode of Migration Trail, Solutions. It just is a risk, but life is all about risk. It's better you die on the sea than to, to die in the land of Libya. So you take the risk. Migration Trail is part of a 10-day real-time online experience. Go to our interactive website, migrationtrail.com, for more infographics on the issues you've heard in this episode. While you're there, you can follow reconstructed journeys based on real experiences and to see migration mapped in a whole new way. This podcast is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher and our website, migrationtrail.com. Migration Trail is made by Alison Killing, Josie Gardner, Sarah Sae, Thomas Leverstro, Asha Kamen and Anique C. Narration by me, Marnie Chesterton. Additional fact-checking by Benjamin Thomas White. The music was composed and performed by Bora Yoon. The Migration Trail Project has been funded by a Wired and the Space Creative Innovation Fellowship, the Creative Industries Fund NL, the Netherlands Film Fund, Dutch Media Fund and Arts Council England. Further support has come from the Fine Acts Foundation, Autodesk and Battersea Arts Centre.